Hey, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have Valentino Stoll. Hey, now. John Epperson. Hello, everybody. I'm Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. This week, we have a special guest. We have Anton. You have a long name, dude. <laughs> uh, it's Ivanopoulos. Ivanopoulos. Cool. You want to just introduce yourself real quick, let people know who you are and why you're famous? Yep, no worries. So, yep, my, my name is Anton. I'm a software engineer in Melbourne, Australia. I work for a company called Popdoc. And so we're a health tech startup, kind of in the platform enablement space. So that's, yeah, kind of what I've been doing for the last three or four years. Cool. Hey, folks, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. And lately, I've been working on actually building out Top End Devs. If you're interested, you can go to topendevs.com slash podcast, and you can actually hear a little bit more about my story, about why I'm doing what I'm doing with Top End Devs, why I changed it from uh, devchat.tv to Top End Devs. But what I really want to get into is that I have decided that I'm going to build the platform that I always wished I had with devchat.tv and I renamed it to Top End Devs because I want to give you the resources that are going to help you to build the career that you want, right? So whether you want to be an influencer in tech, whether you want to go and just max out your salary and then go live a lifestyle with your family, your friends, or just traveling the world or whatever, I, I want to give you the resources that are going to help you do that. We're going to have career and leadership resources in there, and we're going to be giving you content on a regular basis to help you level up and max out your career. So go check it out at topendevs.com. If you sign up before my birthday, that's December 14th. If you sign up before my birthday, you can get 50% off the lifetime of your subscription. Once again, that's topendevs.com. Well, we brought you on because we ran across an article where you were talking about using Isolator with Sidekick to do awesome stuff. Do you want to give us kind of the rundown on that? Just what Isolator is and then how it solves the particular problem that you're looking at? And then we can dive in and Talk about being awesome with Sidekick. <laughs> yeah, so, sorry, I guess at a high level, the, um, the article that I put together covered like two things. So one of them kind of focusing on, on Isolator. Uh, so the, the project I was kind of looking at at the time was doing a migration from delayed job to Sidekick. And so I had recently heard about Isolator from listening to the Blackjack podcast. And that sort of came up there. Kind of pretty similar, um, similar context of, you know, wanting to know if this particular issue was happening where you know you could queue up some work unwittingly in a transaction and sidekick would pick that up faster than you would think that it would happen and so for me the the context was i would sort of been using sidekick for a while um and i kind of wanted to like i already had some knowledge about that issue and i know the context for me was more around wanting to know during that that migration if we were going to hit any snags right out of the gate and so, yeah, like it, in terms of adding it in, like we had a whole bunch of hits pretty early on of just like there's that work being done in transactions. So we sort of needed to clean up from there. And, you know, thankfully it was pretty, it was pretty easy to sort of get that smoothed out. And, and the gen helps a lot with that. And it kind of helps with some other kind of more educational issues sort of going forward for newer devs and stuff like that that come under the project. Gotcha. So as I was reading through this, it looks like Isolator in particular just kind of keeps you from doing, I don't know dumb stuff in the middle of a transaction. Yeah, exactly. So I mean, the, the gem you know, at its uh, at the hollow is like just picking up non-atomic database or work inside database transactions. Um, so in our case, we had a couple of instances come come up, which were you know both things of like doing up psychic workers, but then a couple of HTTP transactions, uh, HTTP requests as well inside those transactions. So the, the article itself goes over the psychic side of things, but there are a couple of other examples of 
work that you don't want to be doing because you might leave the transaction open too long. But yeah, the other the idea of kind of goes more into the cycle side of things and how that interaction between the database transactions and how Sidekick can sort of pick up things that you're not expecting um, sooner or like you might queue things up and the transaction doesn't commit properly for whatever reason might fail um, in, in some of the, the work that you're doing after you queue up work. And so in that case, you know, you have Sidekick picking up a worker that you actually don't want to run anymore because it's not going to use the, the data that you're expected to, to do. And that might have some different implications depending on what you're asked Right. So... The example you gave was like adding a comment. And initially, my thought process was that, yeah, you know, you don't want to add your delayed job in the middle of a transaction where you're saving your uh, comment to the database, right? Because if the transaction gets backed out, then so does your delay job. But that may actually be more of a feature than a bug, depending. But it's it's kind of out of band enough to where I had to think about it and really figure out if that was really something that I cared about. But then, yeah, when you're talking about, yeah, not knowing what state the the data is in and maybe working on a record that isn't how you thought it was, that that's where it really kind of made sense to me, right? Because you enqueue the job to run later, but if the transaction fails, then what you expected to happen didn't actually happen. Yeah, exactly. So the, the, the create case of like a thing, like the, the work that starts before, like your you object is actually the database, that that case there is relatively benign. I mean, like for the most part, it'll probably your work will run. The thing's not there, and it'll fail, and then Psychic will just pick it back up and then retry it, and then more than likely that transaction will be done by then. The case that you brought up is probably the the stickier one that people will run into, where like a thing is just not what you thought it to be at that point for whatever reason. And it might be it might be the, the failed transactions, but it might be updates as well, right? Like so if you do the queue up and queuing up with the work in an update transaction it's a kind of the same scenario there where it's like that worker will go off the stale data potentially um and so whatever work you happen to be doing like this the, the comment mailer is a relatively simple example but you know you might be doing some work on a thing that you expect to be in the new state but it's not in the new state it's in the old state still i mean i think we have new ways to do this too now right because with rail 7 we have we have our parallel queries going on and other things. And I think at the end of the day, right, this is an instance where you are specifically saying, hey, in this section of the code, I want to do everything in sequence. But if you make calls that parallelize stuff, you know, you have to make sure that those asynchronous things are done before before other things go on. Or in the case of Sidekick, which can, which can just start right away, you actually want to enqueue that to go after the transaction's done. So, you know, you have to you have to think about things like this, right? And uh, like all parallelism-related matters, it's actually harder than it looks on the on the surface. Yeah, totally. I mean, I, like, I have no play with the, the parallel theories or anything like that, but yeah, like this, the second part of the article, which is not super in-depth or anything, um, I've kind of left that sort of looking for a follow-up, but it kind of explores things like isolator in in that in that use case of like trying to prevent some like common gotchas, uh, like what what tools do we have available to sort of like smooth that that, that developer experience so that you, you don't need to um there's a lot of arcane knowledge like that but like you know stuff like sidekick is gonna pick things up straight away that you might not expect to and so it's kind of a look at like what what can we use to sort of take away the need for someone to have to disperse knowledge like that that can get picked up with tools like this and so I kind of briefly mentioned there with like 
for for my case going forward, it's it's a better conversation starter with other developers who potentially not run into that case because you you know you have a specific error message about isolator. It's something that's Googleable. They can look it up beforehand, and you know they might raise an issue being like, "Hey, I'm getting this this error. I don't actually really know what it is." And get some help with that. And I find having that that error there is, is like I said, it's a, it's a better conversation starter for for me personally, at least. Um, having that context rather than you know like some weird issue in in prod potentially around like, hey, my work is not doing what I expected to. Um, and having to try and sort of like you probably lean into this issue pretty early on uh, and try and like narrow it down. But you know that's it's sort of the investigation you need to do. Yeah, one thing that I saw though that I'm just going to say it. Rails callbacks is not my favorite feature in Rails. And I noticed that, yeah, in a, you basically moved a lot of the in queuing of the jobs to, you know, an after commit or an after, after create or things like that. And I mean, it basically did just enqueue the job. So I wasn't, I wasn't too bothered by it. But most of the time when I'm running through those kinds of things where it's like a comment, right? And then it's notify the author. And so you, you hit the mailer and you tell it to deliver later. A lot of times that's actually you're you're doing a lot of that work in the controller anyway. And so when you check for success, you could just enqueue it there. And I tend to prefer that, but I mean what you're talking about here yeah. makes sense. Yeah, for for sure. Like I I think the ideal is that yeah, you're doing doing work like that in in places that make more sense and that you're not relying on callbacks as well. But I mean in, in my case in particular, like it's it was a project where like the callbacks are already kind of permeated through a lot of the code base. And so this is kind of just a layer for us to sort of like, at least, you know, have a bit of a launching pad to sort of be like, okay, this is all the work that is happening in callbacks. Give us a level of safety there. Uh, if we want to sort of move away in the future, we can and start to sort of like restructure those things. But like, uh, like I said, uh, the, there was already kind of like a breadth of work where that work is happening in those callbacks. There's a lot of, like there is all this stuff at the end as well about the ad hoc transactions, which you know if you're if you're spinning up manual transactions in whether it's like a service object or whatever pattern of of choice, there's that syntax as well of like using after commit everywhere to have a have a small block to to do that work after commit, which is a I kind of made, like, I've not played with that syntax too much yet, but you know in on paper I kind of I, I dig it I, I find it readable. Of being able to be like, you know, here's a ad hoc transaction of spot up. Here's a whole bunch of work, and I still want to do this outside of that. Yeah, you know, I'm really surprised that the transactions themselves don't already have this feature where you can just give it a success block and perform something after. It's it's such a common pattern. But so I'm I'm more curious how you came to this. Like, did you discover this in like a production bug? Was this uh, just something that you found from from watching that or? Re- listening to the bike shed, you know, was there a debugging process to, to finding these things? Yeah. Oh, so you mean the, the issue in general? Yeah. Yeah. So probably a mix of like, uh, yeah, the, the debug, the process itself. Like I said, I've, I've kind of used Psychic a fair bit over the last sort of eight-ish years of doing background jobs. So this is, it's a thing that's sort of come up before and it's a, it's a gotcha that I've sort of had to work through myself on like different other projects. And so the context of what I've written up here is more around like coming to the table with that prior knowledge. But for me, it's kind of just like, how can I, you know, avoid other people having to sort of go through the same thing 
So my follow-up question is, have you found a good way to test this specific scenario? Or is it just you kind of using isolator to raise those cases where it would happen? Yes, they're using the gen to, to raise those cases of like an existing project already kind of doing its own test, whether it's a degradation test to sort of go into it, or like um, uh, in the case of like service objects, they're doing some, some specs of that flow, uh, whatever work that is. Isolator will sort of raise those errors in, in tests and like, and you know, give you some stuff to work off. Um, aware, around where that work might be happening, and it's a, it's a, you know, isolator is not the, the only tool. Like we had a look at some of the stuff that like GitLab does, for example, they do kind of like a baked in solution for the same thing that you know tracks the transactions and raises a similar error. But isolator, I think, does uh, like I mentioned, it does like HTTP re- requests as well. Uh, I think that the thing we saw with GitLab was it was pretty sidekick oriented. So, do you use isolator kind of in the context of workers themselves too so you can prevent further cases of this happening like if a worker triggers a worker that also would call one of these callbacks or something like that uh if i like if workers call workers kind of example uh like i'm i'm thinking this scenario you you have a a worker that goes through and creates other workers to like do a batch of things as an example not yet so we're doing some batching work but yeah at the moment the the, the use case for isolator has been more in the um particularly this the service object uh kind of context of where, where this work is sort of happening more in the like rails request kind of context like doing stuff in line wouldn't you catch the top level worker in that case valentino so like would it wouldn't uh, isn't your question like would would isolator catch the scenario or yeah like would i would isolator catch the subsequent workers, right? Like say you have well, a worker that's going and it's going to say, okay, I want to send like 500 deliver later emails. Is it going to go and you, catch, right? And it, it'll queue up all those yep. deliver later emails that are, right? Maybe so, those yeah, yeah, are on transaction that's <clears throat> updating a user or something. So yeah, so I think, right, based off of what we've been described, it would catch the top level one. Or if your worker was enqueuing a bunch of emails in a transaction, which is probably not a good idea to do in a worker, then theoretically you would catch all of those. <laughs> I, I have done the pattern before, but you do have to be conscious about what you're doing when you do that. Yeah, it sounds like what it's doing is it's just double checking and saying, you opened a transaction on the database, which means that everything inside of here is supposed to be atomic. So if you're passing out to anything that isn't basically logic or the database, then you're probably counting on this transaction completing and then doing the other work. And so you should be queuing that stuff up after the transaction ends. In other words, if you're updating a comment and you want to send an email, if you're updating a comment, you want to hit an HTTP endpoint for an API or something like that, you're generally assuming that the transaction is going to finish without failing and so you should do that work outside the transaction so that it, that stuff doesn't have to be atomic with the database work i think so i actually like this i think this is super awesome as somebody who does 
So uh, Chuck was saying earlier, well, you know, I don't like to do stuff in after commits. I do it in my controller, right? And and I do a lot of stuff in service objects, right? Like, so I wrap these processes, so to speak, right, up in, in something that encapsulates the process. That's my preferred pattern. But when you are like a single person and your app is very new, I think there's nothing wrong with using callbacks. And then you can graduate to something later on as as it becomes more appropriate. Now, if you have like a thousand callbacks on, on a model, maybe you should consider a new pattern right then. But in the beginning, most people are doing pretty innocent stuff after commit. I need to enqueue this email and and that's really common and I think this is this is phenomenal for uh helping people to sort of like catch some of those edge cases that become race conditions later. Yeah, for for me it's a little bit of like the you don't know what you don't know almost when it comes to like a newer product that you're that you're coming onto as well. So uh that that was the case for me in this adding this and uh, that helped there of like okay cool i don't really have the the full lay of the land with yeah, all the work that's happening um in a delayed context and this kind of helps sort of like give me give me a bit of confidence in what i'm trying to sort of achieve here honestly though i think that's actually a common story right like uh, our community is full of people who they know some stuff over here and they don't know stuff over there and we're rails is one of the reasons why rails is awesome is because it enables people to come in when they don't have all that expertise and still be productive so it's really easy to get an app up and going and running in production and have this kind of stuff so yeah i i definitely think that's a use case that i expect other people to have sometimes for sure hi this is charles maxwood from top end devs and lately i've been coaching some people on starting some podcasts and in some cases, just taking their career to the next level. You know, whether you're beginner going to intermediate, intermediate going to advanced, whether you're trying to get noticed in the community or go freelance, I've been helping these folks figure out how to get in front of people, how to build relationships and how to build their careers and max out and and just go to the next level. So if you're interested in talking to me and having me help you go to the next level, Go to topendevs.com slash coaching. I will give you a one hour free session where we can figure out what you're trying to do, where you're trying to go and figure out what the next steps are. And then from there, we can figure out how to get you to the place you want to go. So once again, that's topendevs.com slash coaching. So do you have any other things that have uh, saved you this kind of work or have you applied this in other areas? So, I mean, this is kind of in a similar vein to things that we use like strong migrations for of like another batch of really specific knowledge in a lot of cases to try and sort of take a lot of the, the risk out of deploying, you know, certain migrations that might cause issues. That kind of helps us a fair bit and, and trying to sort of like educate people on an ongoing basis. Can you elaborate on what strong migrations are? Yeah, for, for sure. So strong migrations is, uh, is a gem. Uh, and so it will do a kind of similar thing here like it will raise errors if you try to do a certain database migration oh, uh, also do a like you know if you want to try and add an index um, to an existing table for example and it will raise an error if you don't do it uh, concurrently and so it'll give you some like guidance on what that actually is, is supposed to look like and so it might give you an example of like you know what that what adding an index looks like or it might give you um uh, an example, if you try to delete a column from a table, it'll raise an error in that case and sort of give you an example of how you're supposed to do that over a couple of different migrations. Um, so things like that. And and those are definitely issues that we've sort of had 
trial of like, you know, we, you know, PR template we've heard, like we've had a checklist all floating around being like, how are you doing with these things? Um, check, check those out and make sure you're doing that properly. Gems like, you know, isolator and strong migrations kind of help sort of whittle, whittle that away of like how much the reviewer and even, even the author of a PR has to sort of like be on top of if we can sort of automate some of this out. And we're trying to, I guess, expand our like our use of Rubocop internally as well to try and not so much kind of in in this vein of picking up some gotchas, uh, although there is a little bit of that, but uh, also trying to sort of nudge people towards some like preferred patterns for, for certain things. Um, and it helps, you know, with, you know, we're trying to do a bit of cleanup with things like paper trail at the moment and, and sort of rework how we're doing that. But doing some custom cops helps us to sort of prevent you know, people, uh, for, for context, we've changed uh, the, the class we use for, for paper trail. Um, when we track new versions, we put together a custom cop to just sort of prevent people from setting up paper trail on a new model without sort of our preferred sort of config so that we don't have to clean it up again later. So stuff like that, it kind of all pulls together of trying to help educate people, not just with best practices, but how we're doing things on the, on the app on a, on a day to day as well. And that kind of helps sort of achieve, uh, some level of consistency, which is always nice. That makes sense, especially from, you know, from the standpoint of how do I put it? Like some of these things I feel like should be strongly encouraged, I guess, without actually forcing them. But others, yeah, you definitely want to be enforcing them because it's just, hey, look, there's another way to do this and it's less problematic. But, you know, for example, you talked about adding indexes concurrently, right? If 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 I've had the database there for a while and I realized I need the index, then I may need it in its own migration just because that's the only way I'm going to get it in in production, right? Otherwise, it's going to conflict. It's going to say, no, that column's already there. But at the same time, yeah, if it can catch it when I'm trying to push it up and it says, hey, you've got two migrations here, you know, you can combine them, right? Because it's the same concern, not Rails concern, but the same area of concern, then yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, the, the strong migrations gem in particular has, has helped, yeah, pre- prevent some of those gotchas and the more riskier gotchas as well. Right? Like, so with, particularly with indexes, mm-hmm. you know, there, there are deploy issues that potentially happen now when you're dealing with bigger, bigger tables. Strong migrations is a really, uh, not because strong migration solves the problem, but uh, I think strong migrations helps to build really good habits. And as we sort of like move to a world where we're, moving our deploys from being like atomic things that where we run Capistrano deploy, right? To being things where you can have, uh, you know, continuous deployment or you have Docker containers involved. Other things where, you know, you don't always know as the state that your app is in during the deploy process. Uh, and there's sort of like a, you know, well, this one might be at this state and this other one might be this other state. So as there's a lot of gotchas, specifically around deploys, that uh, your migrations can really cause uh, huge problems with, um, especially when you mix in like, oh, I am uh, updating the data inside this table to something during, you know, during my deploy um, or adding columns, you know, that maybe one of my servers has the new code on for the new column and the other does not. So I feel like strong migrations helps you to get some of those like good patterns that you that your team will need if you're doing some more complicated stuff like that. So yeah, I'm I'm actually kind of a big fan around some of these things. At the same time, I would also say like like all things that are like curbs or 
I don't know, barrier or, you know, I don't know, guiding barriers or whatever we want to call them. It just depends because that's a, that's a little cost. Like it's a little bit of administrative cost that you're adding to your app to make sure that every PR gets through. And theoretically, it could buy you, especially on larger projects, it can buy you a lot of consistency and smooth over those problems with deploys and things like that. But at the small scale, that might be something you have to make a judgment call on whether you want that or not. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's all just rather balancing of the kind of risk reward side of things. Uh, for, for us, it, it definitely falls on that side of the, the extra work is worth it. Uh, like we are at the, the kind of the scale that we kind of need to prevent some of those things. And like these are, these tools aren't going to catch everything, but it is just around like, like you said, like trying to nudge people towards some like better, best practices, like more sort of rounded out knowledge, that kind of thing. Like we've, we've, we've still run into certain issues, even though it's trying to make migrations in place, just because of, um, you know, you might write the, the, the perfect migration, but it might touch a table that is going to cause some issues. And so we, we've kind of had to open that a little bit with some more baked into the app knowledge around, you know, doing this, doing certain migrations with certain tables. But yeah, it's all, like you said, it's all a bit of a, a game risk reward versus like the, yeah, the, the, the cost. So you mentioned you make some custom comps for Rubicop to kind of help with preventative maintenance, right? <laughs> yeah. So that, that's a, a, a new thing that we're trying to help make a bit more. <laughs> so, I mean, that's great. Uh, we do that a lot too at Doximity and, and it really does help uh, with some things. At, at what point do you kind of come together and be like, all right, we need to s- spend some time and money, you know, making these and, and kind of what, what rewards are you looking for out of it? Yeah. That's a, that's a good question. So more broadly, uh, that's not a conversation we've had to sort of have yet. In the, the case specifically of like where I sort of had ventured out to do a cop, um, that was the case of like, here's a whole bunch of maintenance that we're trying to do, um, with our paper trail versions table, which is quite large, and we kind of want to prevent certain things happening going forward so we can sort of wiggle down the table size for this. And yeah, kind of out of the gate, for, for me, uh, at least, was the, the, the cost of writing a cop that just checked the, the config, uh, specified the, you know, the certain parameters that we kind of needed going forward so that people weren't adding on extra files that we didn't really want to be there and have to clean up again. That's, that's, that was kind of the, like, the cost was low enough to, to, to save us that additional work down the line of having to sort of like revisit these extra models, kind of bring it back up to the country that we needed to be, clean them up again, sort of bring us around. And, you know, in the, in the future, we'll eventually get to a point where we probably drop that custom cut because once we finish our cleanup, we'll just go back to using the default burden model. But, you know, there's this kind of weird limbo period in between where we don't want people to Using the, the defaults, we we want to sort of not be using some of those those config options until until we're done. And so this helps with that. Like it, this is kind of a certain layer of administrative <laughs> prevention of on on our part to just sort of keep things in line and not have to worry about. I think we have a couple of custom cops floating around that were written a while back. Kind of like I mentioned that just before, this around like kind of augmenting what strong migrations is doing. Uh, so just checking uh, kind of in the small vein of lots of preventative stuff, but also, yeah, just checking like migrations on some of our like large tables and more higher churn tables to see if they, if they're a migration that needs to kind of happen outside of ours. And so the cops are kind of like a, it's a little, it's a little bit heavy handed, but you, we kind of check that and uh, it, it's just a moment of pause to be like, oh, cool. No, I'm actually 
fine with doing this. I can, like, if I, if I don't play with the whoever it is, you're be like, okay, cool, I need to play this with, like, officer level, and we can pay this up and have them the one. And so, yeah, it's a, that, that's a little bit of extra revenue, but it, it certainly saves a larger issue uh, that would happen in pro. And so, yeah, I, th- I think the, the hard part with a lot of this stuff is trying to, you want to take as much of the risk out as possible. Um, you're not going to take all the risk out, but hopefully you can take enough out so that, you know, people can fail, uh, in a less risky environment and not, you know, like you mentioned, deploying, deploying the fraud and not knowing the state, the state of certain things when you do it. So, so I have, I, I wanted to piggyback off of what you said before anything, because I have, I have a client that I'm working with right now who only has a production environment, no staging environment, and they're on Elastic Beanstalk, and there's a lot of, it's the, you know, very old Elastic Beanstalk, so they actually are unable to create a staging environment because of lots of problems. And so we are creating an ultra-conservative, like, strategy to slowly, like, add some add some things so that we can migrate their stuff to a completely different deployment system and you know a, a lot of your messages about like reducing risk it just like kind of reminds me about this particular client is extremely risk averse but i have worked at lots of places and i've had clients before who are completely non-risk averse and and you know there's just it just depends on the constraints of the place that you're at you know as to what amount of risk you can you can eat or whatever and this is just an extraordinary exception i think but yes i definitely wanted to ask you so so the whole thing that started this entire thing is because you decided you know what we're done with delayed jobs let's move to sidekick i'm not asking you to tell me which one's better but i'm just curious what motivated your move um (laughs) I mean, look, they, they do things slightly differently. And I'm just kind of curious, what was the constraint in your environment that uh, made you want to make that choice? Because ripping out your old uh, job backend and replacing it with a new one is a, is it, that's a risky thing. So, so something must have motivated it. And I'm just kind of curious what it was in y'all's case. Yeah, uh, good question. Um, I don't have all of the context of it. Uh, so this wasn't at my current job, I was like, at um, but, uh, so my understanding of the context was just around trying to ease some of the load of the database that was in place. So the, the scale of everything was a, it was a lot smaller than what we kind of had access to that hotbook. There was a pretty kind of nice unused Redis instance that was sitting there. Uh, and we were just kind of like, look, the, the amount of jobs and everything that we have in place moving at this point is not out of the realms of feasibility. I don't know how certain things that scale up and the retry logic and all of, of, of Psychic is quite nice. So there are, there are certain things that we kind of had in place that we liked about it. And uh, like I said, the, the database interactions, uh, taking them away and, and moving them over to Psychic so was was one of the drivers for that. Nice. Were you already on active jobs at the time or were you using like delayed jobs in Psychic like raw, so to speak? So in this Project that was on top of active job. There were a couple instances that I vaguely remember of having to use like the raw psychic workers as well in uh, in a certain case. At Hotbox, for instance, a lot of that stuff is raw psychic workers, though. Uh, we've only got a couple of instances of, of using active job. And I think like we're using some of the batching 
and stuff with sidekick as well. And I don't remember if that actually plays nicely uh, or super nicely. The the pro version or a roll your own or no. there's like a gem version. There's a pro version and then like a roll your own <laughs> that you can do at home. Yeah, uh, so we're using the pro version. Cool. All right. Anything else that we want to dive into here before we go to picks? All right. Let's go ahead and do picks. Hey, folks, if you love this podcast and would like to support the show, or if you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages, then you're in luck. We're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after Christmas 2020 without the ads. Signing up will help us pay for editing and production, and you can go sign up at devchat.tv slash premium. Uh, Valentino, do you want to start us off with picks? Give me a minute. <laughs> How about you, John? Do you want to start us off with picks? Yes. So, I mean, I... My picks are going to be pretty similar to my picks from last episode because this Rails upgrade is definitely what's on my mind right now that I just did. So a little more context, I uh, just finished upgrading an app from Rails 5 onto Rails 7 and they were using 100% asset pipeline. And I have slow, I've been writing stimulus controllers on this app slowly and uh, kind of like... If you've ever added stimulus to asset pipeline, you would, I believe, sympathize with my pain that it sucks a lot because asset pipeline just doesn't really handle modular JavaScript very well. And you're when you go to stimulus, you're like, well, I just want to use the ES6 syntax and all this kind of stuff. And it's just, it's hard. And stimulus three doesn't really work with it. So you can't use the new cool stuff. So anyway, I wanted all that. And I was looking at import maps, or sorry, this app also has JavaScript that is not modular. And I didn't want to spend tons of time modularizing this JavaScript at this time. So I wanted to have my cake and eat it too. And uh, I looked at import maps and it really looked to me like I was going to be able to have my cake and eat it too with import maps working with asset pipeline. And and I'm very happy to say that that is exactly what happened. Import maps works great. So that's my first pick. And then while I was doing this, the app is also a device app and I had to add turbo to that. I didn't have to add turbo, but I did because all the import maps tutorials have turbo in them and I was having other things going on. So ended up on Turbo. That's what happened. But there's a weird interaction with device that just breaks your app. You just get these CSRF token errors. And I found like a tutorial on that. That's just, it was a goes, it was a go rails video. So it was, was non-obvious what the problem was. And I even saw this like early on in my troubleshooting, but I had like two problems at the time. So I didn't really, it didn't really hit me that this was the problem. And that ended up being one of the two things that I had going on. Yeah, so that really helped out. And just at the end of the day, man, I'm just like going to pump stimulus again. It, I took some stuff that was in the application JS. I created a like document controller that basically I just put on my app HTML outer thing or whatever. And then I put the stuff that we had to run on load on that. And boom, I was suddenly removing code that was in our application JS file out of that into a stimulus controller was great. So all of that was like really awesome. The conversion process went mostly smoothly other than the two days I spent spinning on on these weird device turbo issues. And yeah, all in all, very happy with some of the new tooling that's coming out for Rails. So I'm gonna put those picks in. Awesome. Valentino, what are your picks? So uh, I did recently read an article from Julia Evans on uh, some tiny programs that she's written just for personal use. Uh, I got a kick out of them. 
One was getting a, a vaccine appointment or looking at housing market data. And it kind of made me a little nostalgic with some scripts that I've made in the past. Uh, so it's definitely a great read. Check it out. And uh, Julie Evans just has some incredible content. And uh, I recently bought up just a, a bunch of coupons to her online store for her comics that she writes that are very super informative. So uh, I'm giving away a bunch of them. If you want to follow me on Twitter, tweet at me, the code name V, T-H-E, code name V. You know, just tell me you're interested and I'll send you one. I just really love her content and trying to support her where I can. Awesome. I'm going to jump in here with a few picks. So for board games, I usually just go week to week picking games. But since we recorded two episodes this week, I, I have to pick and choose. So I'm going to pick one. I think I picked this one a while back, but I picked it before I was uh, handing out uh, Board Game Geek ranks. And so I'm going to pick it again just because it's super fun. It's called The Lost Ruins of Arnak. It came out in 2020. Board Game Geek rank on it is a, or weight is a 2.87, right? So I mentioned last time that most of the more complicated games that most people, casual gamers play are twos. So this one's a bit more complicated than that. It's definitely fun. It, I think it's well worth it. Its overall rank on Board Game Geek is 31, which means that people who are Board Game Geeks like it. So yeah, I'm going to pick Lost Ruins of Arnak. Uh, just to give a little bit of uh, explanation as to what it is, you're explorers and you're trying to find relics. And then as you find relics, it gives you more stuff. Um, as you explore more areas, you have to fight monsters. But as you fight monsters again, you get more... Uh, relics and tokens and stuff like that. You can research stuff and move that token up the board as well. And yeah, anyway, whoever has the most artifacts at the end wins. And so anyway, it's pretty fun. It's one to four players. I have not played it one player. Most of these games are a little bit different when you play in one player than when you play with multiple people. But uh, way fun game. So I'm going to pick that. I'm going to remind people about Rails Remote Conf. Uh, go to railsremoteconf.com. The CFP will be open. I tend to invite people who have been on the show and uh, fit into some of the tracks that we're going to put together. But yeah, you can also just go get your ticket right now. So anyway, those are my picks. Anton, what are your picks? Cool. I might go a little bit. Um, mine, one in both worlds, you mentioned the board game. I might one as well. Uh, one of my sort of recent ones is being Spirit Island. I don't know if you've played that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a super cool board game. What is it? Spirit what? Uh, Spirit Island. Spirit Island. Um, yeah. So it's a more co-op-y uh, board game. Mm-hmm. Uh, you and who are your opponents. I think it's one for people as well. You pick a an island spirit, and you have certain powers, and you're trying to drive away people who are trying to colonize the island. Essentially, you use these these powers, and your like kind of presence tokens to sort of expand your influence uh, and sort of remove the the, the, the opposition, basically. Uh, and the 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 colonizers are all driven by uh, the, the turns as you go. So, like you haven't played a one player, but you can kind of pick and augment the game and make it more or less difficult as you want. But me and my partner played it. So it's a pretty cool free play game. And then the other I'm just going to chime in here. So Board Game Geek has that one at a 4.04 weight. So it's a rather involved game. It's not It's not too bad in terms of complexity. Oh, really? Uh, but it does take a little bit to get it going. Okay. Once you once you get that rhythm for it, then it, it starts to sort of like pick up the pace. But there is, yep. admittedly, there is a fair bit to sort of like take on at the start. Um, cool. And the other thing I'll pick on the, the topic of Billy Ravens, um, I recently used uh, uh, Ruby Spy a fair bit uh, for a particular problem we tried to debug with some 
production workers. Uh, so Arby Spy is a Ruby profiler. He, the context of what we were trying to do was to try and like basically open up a bike communities run Arby Spy against a particular, a particular worker. And then, so we have like or a particular queue, anywhere from like one to I think fourteen uh, worker processes. Uh, this was pretty handy in sort of diving into any one of those to sort of figure out what was going on um, in certain workloads that were kind of causing some weird issues that we weren't expecting. Um, and you get a cool like flame graph output that you can kind of drill into and sort of see what might be happening and whether whether top has been sort of been soaked up. So yeah, we're trying to expand our tooling around that a little bit to make it easier for people to sort of do that on a more ad hoc basis. Um, but it was a real success for the issue that we tried to dive into. Awesome. Well, if people want to follow up with you, where do they go? Yeah, so I'm not super active on Twitter, but um, you you can follow me there. Uh, it's just uh, A. Ivanopoulos. Uh, that's just my name. Uh, and then anthonivanopoulos.com is where I've been trying to do some, some more posting. Uh, but I'll probably try and get back into that a little bit more this year. Awesome. Well, thanks for coming. This was a lot of fun. All right, folks. Till next time, Max out. Take care. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.